Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of our Multi-State Monday podcast series. This is Ogletree's podcast series that aims to tackle trending multi-state issues. I am Deanna Hayes, chair of the multi-state practice group here at Ogletree. I'm a shareholder in the firm's Tampa office, and I'm joined today by Susan Gorey. As a co-host, Susan is a practice group member in our Indianapolis office. Say hello, Susan. Hi, everybody. It's so good to be back. We have missed you. And we have a special guest here with us today, John Merrill. John is a shareholder in our Greenville office, and he is a member of the firm's traditional labor relations practice group. We're excited that he's going to share his experience with us today and tell us all about social media policies and what employers need to know. So, John, say hello to everyone. Hello, everyone. So, I guess the first question is, John, do employers even need a social media policy? I think so. Opinions may kind of vary on this. And I remember when social media policies first kind of came into vogue, some partners that I had would say, ah, you just, you know, just enforce your sexual harassment, your discrimination policies, make sure people aren't violating those on social media, but you're really just enforcing those policies or your policy on confidential information. You're just enforcing that policy. You don't need a freestanding social media policy. However, I think that because employees uh, live so much of their lives on social media. And, you know, a lot of them probably have the expectation that, that what they do on social media is none of their employer's business. I think it makes sense to have a policy to let employees know that we do care what they say and do on social media when it implicates our business interests as an employer. I would agree. It's just become such a big part of society these days. Uh, and since we know that employers should probably consider having one as a best practice, what should they keep in mind when they're drafting or updating a social media policy broadly? All right. So there are a few kind of areas of the law that I think employers have to keep in mind. The first is the National Labor Relations Act. And you know, just to, at a very high level, talk about what that law is. It's the law that first gave employees the right to join a union. It applies to only to non-supervisors. So this only applies to your non-supervisory employees. But in addition to giving employees the right to form unions, it, it gives employees the right to engage in what's called protected concerted activity, PCA is what I'll call it throughout the podcast. And that is just generally speaking at a high level, two or more employees getting together to discuss or protest some aspect of their working conditions. And the NLRB really in the early 2010s started looking at social media as being, in the NLRB's own words, uh, the new version of the water cooler, like the new water cooler. So, you know, whereas historically employees who wanted to engage in PCA, they'd be having conversations at the water cooler about how their supervisor's treating them, about their wages and benefits, things like that. Now they're having those conversations on social media and the NLRB really cares about protecting their right to do so. Uh, so that's kind of why the NLRB even looks at people's social media policies to determine whether there's language in there that would discourage employees from 
from exercising their right to engage in PCA on social media. So John, let's talk about that because I know some of the policies that come across my desk are very broad and a lot of language that I see employers want to keep, such as being, quote, fair and being respectful. So in addition to those terms, can you tell us what, why the NLRB does not like those terms and or why they might be problematic along with another list of terms, if there are any? Yeah, sure. So the NLRB's problem with terms like be fair and courteous or be respectful towards the company and your supervisors or don't say anything offensive, don't say anything negative. The concern is really that the language is so broad that if employees, in the NLRB's eyes, if employees read that language, they won't really know what it means. They won't know that what the company's talking about is is not being a jerk. They'll read that language and think that it means, oh, I can't criticize the company, can't criticize how my supervisor's treating me, I can't criticize my wages. They have a lot of leeway employees under the law to, to be critical if it relates to their terms and conditions of employment, like their wages and benefits. So then RB's concerned with those broad terms, offensive, negative, disrespectful, fair, courteous, uh, is that employees will read those and not really know what, what they can and can't say. They won't know that that only means, you know, don't be a jerk towards somebody. It, it doesn't mean you can't criticize your wages and terms and conditions of employment. Okay. Okay. So that's kind of the list that we're looking at when we're reviewing these kind of policies to avoid just because they believe it would have a chilling effect. That's the exact terminology they use. It'll have a chilling effect that if employees want to engage in PCA or want to form a union, they'll read this policy and it will discourage them from doing so. Okay. What about the difference between false and maliciously false? Yeah. So that's another distinction that is is really kind of a in the weeds type point. But if if you have a policy that says don't say anything false online or don't or make sure everything you say is accurate before you post anything online. Yes. I mean that seems perfectly reasonable, right? I was just gonna say, yes, absolutely. You <laughs> see those policies all the time, right? But there are there is some NLRB guidance that says, well, that terminology is too broad because really under the law, under the National Labor Relations Act, and as it's developed in cases over the years, employees can say something false if they're engaging in PCA or union activity, as long as they don't know it's false, or as long as they're not saying it with reckless disregard to the truth or falsity. That's the terminology that NLRB uses. So it's a pretty easy fix. You just change whatever language you got in the policy about people not saying false things or not saying untrue things, you're prohibited from saying anything that is maliciously false. Those are the magic words that the NLRB is okay with. And maliciously false means either the person making the statement knows it's false or is making it with reckless disregard for whether it's true or not. So if you say, don't say anything maliciously false or don't say anything you know to be false, that's going to be okay with the NLRB. Okay. Are there any other magic words that the NLRB likes? There are words that have been okay in prior social media policies in context. So like if you're talking about something like harassment, 
you know, obviously you got a right to prohibit unlawful harassment. You may just want to say unlawful harassment, or you may want to may want to say, you know, nobody can harass a coworker or customer or vendor or anyone else online, and then give specific examples that are really unlawful harassment on the basis of sex and race and age and national origin, things like that. Um, you know, I'll say there's some terms that are kind of borderline that I deem vague, but that have passed muster in other NLRB cases like intimidating, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't use intimidating language. That's kind of a vague term. There is some NLRB guidance where a policy containing that term was, was found not to be too broad. You know, I'll tell you the things the NLRB is really looking for. One, you don't want to have any language in your in your social media policy that says employees can't talk about their wages or benefits. If you understand the National Labor Relations Act, you know that's that's right. pretty clearly not acceptable. But a lot of people do include still include that kind of language in their policies. Using the company's name, like if you have a policy that says employees can't use the company's name or logo or identify themselves as a company employee, the NLRB is going to have a problem with that. Now, and why is that? Okay, so the name, you know, an employee would have a right to go online and say, I'm an employee of XYZ company and they are not paying their employees a fair wage. That would definitely be protected activity. So if we tell them we can't, they can't use the company name, that will interfere with their rights to, you know, either to form a union or to discuss their working conditions online with their coworkers. Um, the logo is a little more complex of an issue. Certainly, most employers, their logo is trademarked intellectual property. And you would argue that you got a right to control your intellectual property. The NLRB has basically said that you've got a right to control the use of the logo for commercial purposes, or you know, you got a right to control use of the logo. You can't use the logo in a manner that would cause somebody to, to look at your profile or your post or whatever and conclude that you're speaking on behalf of the company. Because we know that we can control who speaks on behalf of the company. So right. you know, language I typically use is don't use the logo for commercial purposes or in a manner that would cause a reader to reasonably conclude you're speaking on behalf of the company. But other use of the logo, so an easy example of when use of the logo might be protected is like a picket. If an employee posted a picture of one of their coworkers on a picket line and they were holding up a picket sign that said XYZ company and used the logo, doesn't pay its workers a fair wage or mistreats workers or whatever. That's the example the NLRB uses is, hey, an employee would have a right to post a picture of a coworker on a picket line with the company logo right. on the picket sign. So it's, um, it's, it's kind of a nuanced point, but I think it's another easy policy fix if you just kind of tweak the language. Okay. Okay. Well, are there ways that we can do a blanket quote fix? I know Dan and I were talking before we hopped on here about disclaimers. Disclaimers can be effective. Potentially, the common disclaimer just says nothing in this policy will be construed to interfere with your rights under federal or state law. Maybe you go the next step and say nothing in this policy will be deemed to interfere with your rights under federal or state law, including the National Labor Relations Act. But in cases where the NLRB has looked at disclaimers like that in the past, it's said that those kind of vague disclaimers are not going to be effective because employees, they don't have a law degree. They don't necessarily know all their rights under the law, and they don't have to know their rights under the National Labor Relations Act to have those rights. 
So if you just tell them we're not going to interpret this in a way that would interfere with federal or state law, they still are not going to necessarily know what they can and can't say. In a social media policy, the disclaimer has to be really detailed and say things like, nothing in this policy interferes with your rights to discuss your wages, benefits, and other terms and conditions of employment with your coworkers, or to form, join, or support a union. You know, a, a level of detail that most employers probably don't want to just spell out in the policy because it's right. uh, it's it's got to be really, really detailed and really informative. And even then, I'm not sure there's a guarantee that the disclaimer will be effective if you've got overbroad terms littered throughout the policy. You know, in other words, oh, okay. you know, in other words, is an employee going to be able to read that and then read the overbroad terms and and interpret it the right way? Um, I still think that you're better off cleaning the policy up and making sure that the policy is drafted in a manner that would pass muster and not try to just rely on the disclaimer. When I'm thinking about what to put in these policies, things that the NLRB is okay with, control who speaks on behalf of the company, tell employees they're not, unless they've been explicitly authorized to speak on behalf of the company, they shouldn't do so. Make sure that they know that your policies on unlawful discrimination and harassment apply to interactions online, just like they would apply if they happened in the workplace. And similarly, hate speech and bullying, things like that, uh, as long as we're describing it with enough detail, I think those are things we ought to be able to regulate without running afoul of the National Labor Relations Act. Mm -hmm. And I think make clear to employees that, you know, your confidential business information can't be shared online. But there, I think it's important to include examples. You can you can cross-reference a confidentiality policy if it's drafted in a way that's legally defensible. But you want to protect your trade secrets and your customer contact information and strategic business plans and things like that. I really love to use a lot of examples that are tailored to the business because I think that really enhances our ability to defend the policy. And that's a good point, John. I know sometimes it can be industry specific, like uh, some healthcare employers might be concerned about patient information ending up on social media or pictures of patients without express permission and that type of thing. Do you typically see that in certain industries? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, and it is industry specific, you know, somebody operating in healthcare or some government contractor that's got government secrets that would be, you know, visible on the production floor, you know, they probably have a stronger claim to confidentiality and protection than, you know, just a regular run of the mill employer. But even then the policy needs to be tailored. You couldn't say, for example, in, in, a, in most instances, don't post a photograph of the uh, anywhere on company property because that'd be too broad. And the NLRB says, well, if they want to take a picture of an unsafe working condition to, to publicize to their coworkers, they should be able to do that. But if you're a healthcare employer, can you control photography in patient care areas? Of course, um, HIPAA protected information. If you're that government contractor that's got government secrets on visible on the production floor, you ought to be able to control photography in that area. So it really is a very tailored analysis. And another follow-up question that I had is, you know, this idea of prohibiting employees from speaking on behalf of the company without authorization. Sometimes I see in policies, all requests from the media should be forwarded to the marketing department. Do you think that's too broad? 
I think I'd be a little bit more specific and tailor it to requests from the media seeking a comment on behalf of the employer. Because remember, we can control who speaks on behalf of the employer, but employees do have a right to talk to the media about their terms and conditions of employment. They don't have a right to speak on behalf of the company, but they got a right to speak on behalf of themselves. Um, and that's another element of protected concerted activity. Absolutely. So it's kind of like that maliciously false, make sure that that on behalf of the company is in there. That's right. So what else beyond the NLRB might employers want to think about? Does the First Amendment apply here at all, John? Well, if you're a governmental employer, the First Amendment is something you obviously got to consider. If you're a private sector employer, you don't really have to worry about the First Amendment. You don't have to worry about freedom of speech in your social media policy. A lot of times, I think employees, like I said, have the this idea that, well, I've got freedom of speech. I can say whatever I want online and my employer can't do anything about it. Well, not really. The government, unless depending on what you're saying, unless you're saying something really bad, can't throw you in jail because of something you said. But your employer, if you say something crazy, can absolutely consider that and making an employment decision. If you get an employee say, saying that's freedom of speech or uh, and you can't interfere with my free speech, that, that really doesn't apply if you're a private sector employer. Well, even if it's off-duty? Even if it's off-duty, if it implicates our legitimate business interests. That's another, I think, uh, misconception employees have is that, well, if I did it on my own computer from home, I wasn't on the clock, I wasn't using company equipment, I should be able to say whatever I want. And, you know, I, I generally understand the sentiment and I generally understand when employers don't want to be too much like Big Brother and be policing employees off-duty social media activity, but there are instances where, uh, you know, if an employee says something violent or threatens violence or, you know, says something racist online, you got a legitimate business reason to to consider that and making an employment decision. And I don't think you, I, I think you want to clarify in the policy, make clear in the policy, the company reserves the right to take action based on things that employees say and do online even off duty, even using their own equipment. Absolutely. And certainly we've seen coworkers come to the employer and make a complaint about things that they've seen coworkers post on social media. And then it becomes a workplace issue, just as if the employee had said it in the workplace. That's exactly right. Exactly right. What about the FTC? Does that agency get involved with social media at all? Yeah, they've started getting more involved in it. Um, and the FTC, what, what they're really concerned about is uh, employees giving testimonials and endorsements of their company's products and services and not disclosing that they work for the company. The concern there is that it misleads consumers potentially. If you got some employee that goes online and says, you know, I love this product, this product's changed my life, and they don't disclose that they're a paid employee by the company that makes the product, that's misleading to consumers. So, the FTC has issued some guidance for really, you know, they've issued guidance for influencers, but they've also issued some guidance uh, that is more directed towards employees and particularly talks about disclosures that employees ought to make when they are doing anything that might be construed as a testimonial or endorsement of the company they work for. And that goes down to the level of FTC guidance on shares and likes. Like, should you disclose that you're a company employee if you share a post advertising the company's product? 
there's some FTC guidance to suggest that you should. Now, it doesn't have to be some, you know, detailed, uh, detailed, lengthy disclosure. It might be hashtag XYZ employee might be a sufficient disclosure. But I think the important thing in the context of drafting social media policies is to inform employees that if they're doing anything that might be construed as a testimonial or endorsement of our company or our company's products and services, they have to disclose that they're a company employee. Where it gets really tricky is in the context of likes. There's actually some FTC guidance to say that even if you're liking a post, if that if if the fact that you've liked a post might lead a consumer to believe that you're endorsing the product or service being advertised, you have to make a disclosure, which is obviously very difficult to do. Like it, you just click a button and and yeah. the, the thumbs up appears or the heart or whatever. And um, you know, how do you make a disclosure in that context? It seems very difficult. But it's really a developing kind of issue. I think what's most important for employers is just to acknowledge it and instruct employees that they have to disclose their affiliation or make it clear that they're affiliated with the company if they're saying anything that might be construed as a testimonial or endorsement. Sure, sure. It makes you wonder, too, how would the FTC police that? (laughs) There are so many (laughs) lives that are happening every second, you know, and only so many uh, investigators for government agencies. So that's interesting. (laughs) Absolutely. It's impossible to to police all that, you would think. But um, I still think we have to be aware of it because it is a risk. Sure, sure. And just for our listeners who might not be as familiar with NLRB, maybe they haven't had any union activity, how might the NLRB get involved? Like, how might they look at an employer's handbook? Okay, good. Great question. If you're a non-union employer that doesn't have many dealings with the NLRB, you're thinking, that how, how would the NLRB ever get their hands on my handbook? But all it takes really is for one employee somewhere to find their way to the NLRB. I'll give you an example. I we had a client years ago, restaurant chain uh, with about 500, 600 restaurants across the country. And uh, they had a disgruntled employee who got fired. And first he tried to go to the EEOC. They said, the circumstances you're describing to us don't establish an EEOC charge, but they might establish an LRB charge. So why don't you go talk to the LRB? And this employee did. He claimed that he had been fired after he called the ethics complaint line and complained about working conditions. The merits of that allegation were, you know, there, there were no merits and the LRB mm. dismissed it. But in the course of the LRB's investigation, as it always does, it mm. asked the employer to produce a copy of its handbook so that it could see if there were any policies that might apply to this situation. And, you know, the employer had the very reasonable thought that if I produce the handbook to the LRB, the LRB will take it easy on me. They did not, I will say, they did not involve me at this stage. Or else I, would have, <laughs> else I would have told them that that is not how it works. But they, they produced the whole handbook and the LRB said, you know what, we're going to dismiss the portion of the charge that alleges this guy was terminated for engaging in protective activity because we don't think there's merit. However, we've looked at your handbook and we've identified 10 policies that violate the law. Oh, man. Yeah. So huge bummer. <laughs> what the employer ended up having to do was with rescind its handbook. So withdraw its handbook, tell employees that those policies were no longer in effect, issue a new handbook and post a notice in all 600 restaurants because you got to post a notice wherever the handbook applies. Post a notice for 60 days saying, here are your rights under the National Labor Relations Act. We will not interfere with those rights by promulgating an unlawfully overbroad policy on X, Y and Z. They had to list all 10 policies. We've rescinded those policies and they're no longer in effect. So 
you know, all it really takes is that one employee to get in front of the NLRB. You know, shoot, that guy could have provided a copy of the handbook to the NLRB and we would have been in the same position. So they don't really care whether the underlying complaint is about the handbook. If they get a copy of your handbook and see anything wrong with it in their eyes, they're going to come after you for that. Susan, you were mentioning uh, before we got on the podcast today that there's like 25 states now that have certain restrictions about what employers can require employees to disclose when it comes to personal accounts. Yes, we, um, John, Dana and I were having a discussion about our multi-state practices, which keep us up at night or make me have gray hair. And one of those is relates to the privacy laws in various states of social media, surprisingly, in particular. And, you know, there are 25 states that it appears have privacy laws that state broadly that an employer cannot require an employee to provide passwords or access to their personal social media accounts. So can you talk to that and any other multi-state issues that might apply here? Yes. So I think that is an issue. And I always bring it up when I do presentations on social media policies. And I've never found anybody who does ask people for their passwords. I think it was it was kind of like a deal where, you know, one or two rogue employers had done that. They wanted to be able to log into somebody's you know, account at the time, this was years ago, and sort of the press got wind of it. And then all these states said, well, this is an easy one. We're not going to let employers ask people for their social media passwords. Um, and and so it's probably unlikely that your policy actually does that. But if it does, you want to be conscious of your, uh, of your footprint and whether you're operating in states that would prohibit that. The other kind of state law nuance that really doesn't get applied to social media policies very much, at least not to my knowledge, but that something to be aware of is a lot of states have lawful off-duty conduct laws, laws that say an employee can't be terminated for engaging in lawful off-duty conduct. And historically, I think what those laws are intended to address is like, you know, an employee who chooses to use alcohol or tobacco while off-duty, that you shouldn't be able to terminate them for doing that. In fact, in South Carolina, where I live, the law is limited to off-duty tobacco use um, and not other forms of lawful off-duty conduct. So I think that's the general intent. But there, in some states, there these policies are worded so broadly that they could conceivably apply to off-duty social media use. Or you're in a state that says an employee won't, can't be terminated for engaging in, uh, for use the use of lawful products while off duty. Mm-hmm. Like and, marijuana and mushrooms in Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. And that that's kind of probably what those laws were getting at. Again, they were probably aimed at um, alcohol and tobacco at the time, but certainly mm-hmm. broad enough to be read that way. And, you know, is social media a lawful product that an employee can use while off duty and not be terminated for? Again, I, I haven't seen the case construing the language that way, but certainly many of these statutes are broad enough to encompass off duty social media use. So something to be aware of if you're operating in a state uh, with, with one of those lawful off duty conduct laws or lawful off duty um, use of lawful products off duty law. And then, of course, the flip side to that is if you if you see illegal activity on behalf of an employee mm-hmm. on social media, you can act on that. I think it was a marketing firm maybe that had an employee who was photographed wearing a company badge at the Capitol riot. 
and ended up terminating that worker because they saw the photo on social media. I, I think that's happened a number of times. Interesting stuff. So this really does become a, a complex area when we're talking about social media policies. And the last thing I just wanted to mention is sometimes employers might want to have employees use social media accounts as part of their job. Um, John, any recommendations there about the distinction for parameters on using social media for work purposes? Yeah, absolutely. And and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. And we know that many, many employers do enlist employees to use social media um, to promote the company. I, you know, you obviously have to disclose the affiliation, as we talked about with the FTC. If you've got uh, non-exempt employees that you are asking to uh, use social media for work purposes, you want to tell them they can't do so while they're off the clock because that is work uh, if they're using social media in a way to promote your company. And I think establishing some ground rules for who's going to own the account. So are you using an official company account and you're just hiring an employee to operate that as many companies do? What if you know, you're employing somebody and you're expecting them to use social media to build a network, build and, and, and promote your business, and then they leave the company. Do you have any access to those contacts, that, that profile? Maybe so, but only if you establish it in writing in either a policy or ideally some sort of agreement with the employee. Definitely important to consider. Well, thank you again, John. Thank you, Susan. I think this has been Absolutely. a great discussion today and, and thanks everyone for joining us. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.